Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello and welcome to Changes. It is Annie McManus here. My guest on Changes today is a triple threat. Rosie Jones is not just disabled, not just gay, but also a woman. Born in Bridlington in Yorkshire in 1990, Rosie Jones is a stand-up comedian, a comedy writer, a children's author and an actor. Maybe you've seen her on programmes like 8 Out of 10 Cats, Would I Lie to You, The Last Leg. Maybe you've seen her live at the Apollo or have booked tickets to see her on her Triple Threat tour this year. Maybe you know a young person who's reading her books about the adventures of Edie Eckhart, a young 11-year-old girl with cerebral palsy. Or maybe you, like me, have laughed and cried whilst watching her now BAFTA-nominated Channel 4 travel show Trip Hazard, My Great British Adventure. If you haven't come across Rosie Jones yet, then frankly I am jealous because encountering her on stage or on screen is a total joy. Rosie Jones, welcome to Changes. Oh my God, Adeline, that was the great intro ever. Thank you and I am so happy to be here because I'm such a fan of Changes, but more than that, Annie, I'm a fan of you. Stop it, Rosie! <laughs> I can't handle it! <laughs> I, am, <laughs> I am also a huge fan of you. And honestly, it's been so fun doing mm-hmm. the research for this. Obviously, I've seen you on telly, but the first time I kind of put you and your name to um to box was my niece, who's also called Annie, who also has cerebral palsy, was reading your Edie Eckhart book. And I was like, what's that book? Because I always want to know what people are reading. She said, oh, it's this. And then I saw your name. And then I was like, I know that name. And then it kind of all came together in my head. So it's been lovely kind of uh, getting to know you and getting to see how you are affecting the lives of people around me as well. So tell me how you use your cerebral palsy and your speech as a tool in your stand-up comedy. I had initially the word weaponizing, but that sounds really aggressive. <laughs> oh, Annie, we will use the word weaponizing because <laughs> anything aggressive and forceful, I am there. Um, love it. But, yeah, I love it, so... We'll get into this probably later, but I've had cerebral palsy all my life, which means as far as I can remember, I've been aware that I'm different, but more than that, people are awkward around me. Um, I saw one of my oldest friends yesterday and she said, my first memory of you is four years old coming into the class, starting school, and everyone had to sit down and I stood at the front and I said, Hello, I'm Rosie. I have a disability called cerebral palsy, which means I talk slowly. But apart from that, I'm just like you now. 
that's amazing. But B, as an adult, I'm a little bit like, ooh, why did you put it on a four-year-old to explain herself? And that has carried through all my life. I feel like it's my responsibility to explain myself to people, which is on one side annoying, but on the other side amazing, because from a very young age, I realised that I could break down barriers with humour. So even at four years old, I could go, Hello, I'm Rosie, I wobble, but I, I'm not drunk. And I will make the other kids laugh. So, when I started stand-up, I already knew I had that comedy edge because I'd used it every time I entered any new space. Um, But to do stand-up as a job, that was inconceivable growing up because I would watch usually male, able-bodied, fast-talking stand-ups and that is not me at all. Uh, So I thought, I can't do it as a job because everyone will get to the punchline before I <laughs> do. Um, and then I thought, wait a minute, they will think they will get to the punchline, but if I write it in a way that always ends in a curveball, no one will know what I'm about to say. So the first joke I ever wrote was, as you can tell from my voice, I am a sufferer from uh, being northern. And... I look back now and I'm like, that is such a cheap joke and I feel like I'm better than that now. But it it did (laughs) the job. Everyone thought I was just explaining my disability before I started. Mm. But now I hit them out the gate with a joke. So for me, it's all about the writing. But as a writer, I love that. And I love how I got to think about every single syllable. Because if it's not important, I'll drop it because I got so much less time than non-disabled right. comedians.
Yeah. So you'll go on and you'll have like a 10 minute slot and you'll have to yeah, maximize every yeah. every word that you can say. There's something so deep about that joke, though, Rosie, like that, as you can see, I suffer from being northern because yeah. what it does is it kind of democratizes the room in that you realize that everyone has their thing. And also, I wonder, like, just that kind of liberation of walking into a room and having to lay your cards on the table. Like if anyone's listening now, if you were that person who had to walk into a room and explain yourself in one sentence, you know, which you do so well and you're so practiced at, there must be something quite liberating in that before anyone can judge you or make any assumptions. You you can go, no, this is yeah. who I am. You've got the control yeah, there. In a yeah, way. and... Um... <laughs> I've recently started therapy, um, which has encouraged incredible and life-changing. And maybe she says it to everyone, but my therapist said, you know yourself so well and mm. I think it's because I have to physically and mentally so physically I need to know exactly what I can and can't do but also when you're entering spaces where you got mm. to reassure people that you are intelligent, that there's mm. nothing wrong with you, that you deserve to be there. You need to have the confidence in yourself, like... I think if I went into my Yorkshire school in the 90s mm. at four years old and gone, oh, um, he hello, hello. Yeah. I, the sad truth is, I'd have no friends. I'd be the widow. I can't afford to be shy. I gotta go mm. in there, go in. Hello, I'm Rosie. I got cerebral body. I love Lego. Shall we play Lego? Cause at that age, Children are so mm. accepting, they just went, okay, oh, you talk a bit weird, but I love Lego as well. So, it's how my friend who I saw yesterday said, at five years old, I never comprehended that you were disabled or different. You were rosy. And I've kept that with me all my life. I think people might initially see my cerebral palsy, but literally 20 seconds in my company, hopefully you go, oh, that's Rosie, she's loud, funny, lovely, but let's be honest, a massive prick. <laughs> I don't think you're a massive oh, prick. Only you. Andy, you don't know me yet.
Okay, so let's go back to little Rosie Jones, four years old, entering the class. And I'm thinking of the parents who would have left you off to school that day, nervously, as any parent would leave their kid going to school. Who were your parents? What were they like? And I guess what kind of effect did they have on you growing up? Oh, my parents are just a pair of legends. Are they? Yeah, Rob and Andrea Jones. I mean, we have a disagreement with this because my opinion is that of they are the best people in the world. And I got cerebral palsy because at birth I didn't breathe for 17 minutes. I nearly died. And my mum and dad were 26. Um, and... The nurses quite practically said to them, we don't know, we don't know the extent of Rosie's disability, we don't know if she'll have intellectual disabilities, I didn't know whether I could walk, talk, anything. Um, and all newborn babies look the same. So pretty much my mum and dad had to wait to see the extent on my disability and now as I grew up it became evident that even though I talked slowly and I didn't walk till I was five there was nothing wrong with my intelligence so Mm. They just supported me and I was the first disabled person to go to my local primary school and then secondary school and then I said, right, I'm going to uni, studied English, then I moved down to London after and every step of the way they never made me feel less able or incapable. So that's my version, but their version is... Rosie, we did nothing. You were an unstoppable force. We just said yes. And on the very few occasions, we said no. You said, well, I'm doing it anyway. Um, so I just think it's maybe we're both right. It's that great combination between loving and supportive parents and just a little stubborn bugger who never took no for an answer. Yeah, I guess like they can say that they've done nothing, but the act of saying yes, most of the time, that's yeah. the key. That's the magic. That's the enabling yeah. you to do to do what you, you feel like you should be able to do. Right. Rosie, let's talk about your first change. So your biggest change in childhood. Tell me about that, please. 
Well, we touched on it, and I said the biggest was going to a mainstream school because before I went to a all-disabled school, and... This sounds awful, and I am telling this story through the prism of a four-year-old child. But I looked around all the other children, and they had physical disabilities and intellectual disabilities. And I thought, why am I here? I can't explain it, but I innately knew that this wasn't a place I needed to be. So... I went home and I said to my mum, I don't want to go there now. I want to go to big school. I couldn't walk at the time. Um, And I said, if you let me go to big school, I promise I'll walk, I'll walk. And I taught myself, this is how driven and stubborn I am. I was like, well, I'm with all the people who can't walk. If I can judge... Do a little two-leg action. I can get out of here. And I did. And that was life-changing for me because I don't want to get too political. But I will. Um, I think I... I'm the perfect age. I think if I were 10 years older, they wouldn't have let me go to a mainstream school. I'd be in the disabled school till I was 18. And they simply didn't have the tools and the resources to educate someone who was a bit clever. But I went to school for the majority of new labour. And at the time... I was given a teaching assistant one-to-one and I got so much money from the government and it was because of that care that I was able to succeed and be happy and safe in a mainstream school. And I loved my TA and she's incredible. And I met up with her recently and she still isn't teaching. She loves her job. But unfortunately, now she's got to look at the four, five, six children with extra need. So that money and that care that 
Irritated, has she gone away? So I fear that if I went to school now, I wouldn't be able to grow and be looked after in the way I did in the 90s. And the Disability Discrimination Act came in in 95, right, which is basically the first ever UK legislation protecting disabled people against various forms of discrimination. How did that change your life? Can you remember anything being different? I mean, because of that act, that's why I went to remain. You were allowed into the school? Yeah. Wow, okay. Yeah, yeah. And then moving forward from that, just applying for jobs, being in spaces with toilets for me, being able to get onto buses. I was only five years old at the time so I do not think five-year-old Rosie was super political but I need to acknowledge that every part of my life I've been affected because of the Disability Discrimination Act. So, as I say, I just think I was born in that sweet spot where disabled people were having rights, but they had the money, the resources, and the care Mm. from the government that disabled people do not have right now. Well, I want to talk about activism um, later, but just sticking to your, your story growing up, I know your your books focus on a young girl with cerebral palsy who's going to secondary school. How was your experience of going to secondary school? It's so funny. I got two opinions on my secondary school. One, how I felt there. Right. And two, looking back in hindsight. So... When I went there, I loved it and I always had friends and I was never bullied. I think because I was always the loud one, the talkative one. Like, I put a wall up to go. Don't even try. And you know, if you say anything, I will make you look like a moron. Mm. It's like one time a little screw of a boy said, get some fucking proper legs. And I turned around and I went, oh, okay, um, what, uh, where from, like, is there a fucking proper leg shop? Can you buy him in bulk, like, what do you mean by that? Because my legs look fucking proper and just how I met that aggression Mm. with 
Okay, let's let's really deep dive into your fucking stupid comments. Yeah. And it made him feel tiny mm. because I was like, you know what, I might keep my fucking improper legs because I like the yeah. shape. So, yeah, at the time I loved it, it was so fun and... Not to toot my own drum or bang my own horn. <laughs> I was always clever, mm. so I always got by. I was always liked by teachers and kids. So I think I let flow at 18 going Great. I'm not scared, but I'm glad I'm out now. So that's how it was in the present. In hindsight, a bit like a lot of my childhood, I felt like I survived secondary school and I was hard working, I was popular but because I knew if I let my guard down for a second mm. I would have got eaten alive and then Again, in hindsight, I think a lot of my teenage years were taken up by having gay thoughts and fancying girls and watching um, Terry Hatcher playing Lois Lane and thinking, I really like her and I don't know why. I like Bridlington. It will always be my hometown, but it is small-minded. It is backwards. A bit like... Everywhere in the 90s, there was lesbian and gay were thrown around mm. like an insult. So I spent a lot of my childhood thinking I'm not a lesbian because that's a bad thing mm. and it was only at 21 when I moved to London and my friends became queer and diverse and non-white and other disabled people it made me go Oh, right, I'm not alone, I can come out, I can be myself in such a way that I don't ever think I've fully embraced who I am in the 18 years in Bridlington. You know, you're in therapy now. Do you feel like you're still fully embracing who you are as a woman in her 30s? Yeah, that's a big question. Yeah, mm. I embrace who I am. I embrace being a comedian with a platform. I embrace my sexuality. I am a proud gay woman, 
Side note, I described myself as gay because that was a recipe and for me still has negative connotations. So yeah, um, Rosie as a singular person. I embrace it, I'm proud of myself, but if I'm honest, I'm single and I've been dating and I am so happy being single, but I can't imagine getting married. I can't imagine having children, even though I think I want children. Mm. I can't imagine being in a happy, healthy relationship with somebody. And that is because... I had grown up in a world where I don't see disabled people depicted on TV in happy, healthy relationships. And as I say, I date a lot and I enjoy having fun but I think when it gets a little bit serious there's a voice in my head going you're disabled you don't deserve this you're a burden on her you're a burden on society. And I never feel that when I'm a singular person. It is when I try to include somebody else mm. in this situation who are... The women I normally date just happen to be non-disabled. Um, and I think that is a factor. It's the moment where they see what it's like to be disabled mm. every day by society makes me go into pushing away mode. Maybe because I know I can cope with it on my own, but if I care about someone, I don't want them to see what I see. You've got to find another Rosie. You've got to find someone with, yeah. with the kind of same same type of tenacity as you. Or I think the therapy will hopefully like help you realize that you're an asset to anyone who goes out with you. You know, it's that isn't it? It's that kind of like yeah. realizing that th- they are lucky to have you and what you bring to the relationship, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. 
I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Listen, can we talk about your adult change? You cite the moment at 27 when you started comedy. Tell me about that. Yeah, so before that, I've been living in London for six years. I had been working in TV. I'd really enjoyed it. And I'd had a lot of friends saying to me, go on, try comedy. And I'd always be like, no, no, no one sounds like me. You don't really get disabled comedians, no. And then that changed and I don't know where it happened. It was just a feeling that if I don't try this now, I never will. And I never want to get to the end of my life regretting anything. And I think... Before we briefly chatted about my birth and how I didn't breathe for 17 minutes, I nearly died. And I feel like I've always been super aware that there is a scenario in which I'm not alive. So I've always been quite fearless because of that. I'm very aware that we only live once. So I was like, was case scenario I'll do a stand-up show I'll die I'll get booed <laughs> up stage and that's yeah. it and yeah. I would have tried it but that didn't happen like my first Stand-up gig was in a shitty little bar in Dalston to 10 people. And in hindsight, it was grim. But the whole feel of it, holding the microphone, being on stage, Making people laugh was all I needed to go, yeah, yeah, I like it. And I think when I worked in TV, when I worked on panel shows, I wanted to make a dip. I wanted to make TV and the world in general more accepting and welcoming Mm. for disabled people. And I think I was making a difference in my own little groups I was making sure no one non-disabled was shitting in the disabled toilet. 
But it was one I stand up that I thought, wow, I can really make a difference. And what I've been doing in my own little way in work and pubs in my friendship groups of talking to people, explaining my disability, showing people that even though I talk slowly, I'm intelligent and funny Mm. and blah, blah, blah. Everything that I had spent 27 years doing, I could now do on a larger scale. And now with the books, with the touring, with meeting people, like... I nearly cried when you said Annie had cerebral palsy and she reads my books because that is why I do what I do so that another little girl or boy in a little northern town is feeling a bit alone and confused to why they're disabled and all their mates aren't, they can turn on the telly or read a book and just go, I'm not alone and it's stories like Annie that make me go yeah I'm tired yeah I haven't had a fully full day off in about two years but I'm making a difference oh god you're gonna help me in bits Jesus, you are though. You so are. You're you're changing the world. You're changing the world just by doing your job, being up there every day. And it's so interesting how you talk about, like you knew you were funny because you'd done it all your life. But also, it's important for anyone listening to know that you you worked as a gag writer yeah. before you were a stand up. So you were you were a professional mm-hmm. funny person. Your battle for you wasn't whether you were good at being a stand up comedian. It was whether you could do it for you yeah. right and whether people would accept you as a stand-up yeah. comedian right yeah and I mean what is interesting is on top of all of that I'm a woman yeah. and I mm. think you find that a lot of female stand-ups have come into the business a different way because this is a sweeping statement but on the whole men are more arrogant enough to go I'm funny I'm gonna start stand up dry no one's told me that I'm funny, but I am. Whereas my way into it, and of course being disabled is a part of it, but my way was, am I funny? I need to check, I need to get the experience I need to um, hone my skills and need to do a comedy writing course 
I need to write for other comedians to hone mm-hmm. my craft. And it was only then when I had six years writing for other people that I could go right. I think I got the knowledge and the tools and the experience to go at it myself. Can I ask about the kind of intersection between you as Rosie Jones, comedian, getting on with your life, to being Rosie Jones, activist, person who represents a huge swathe of people in our country that aren't represented on stage and on screen. How do you reconcile those two things? I can imagine, and I don't know, but I can imagine there might be a day where you're just like, I don't feel like being an activist today. I just want to eat my yeah. cornflakes and get on with my day, you know? <laughs> I don't feel like having to speak for so many people. Yeah, the truth is it changes yeah. every day. Like, I need to remember that I am... First and foremost, a comedian. My top line job description is make people laugh. That's it. If I do that, job done. But I need to be aware that I am female, I am gay, I am disabled and I have the platform and I have the opportunity to talk on behalf of those communities Mm. And I can hopefully change people's minds and do a little bit of good in the world. And I think for me, a big shift was um, the pandemic because that was a interesting combination between my career somehow took off during lockdown and I feel like because of the government, because of the pandemic, disabled people were a community that weren't being talked about mm. as openly and fundamentally disabled people were dying because they didn't have the care of resources that they needed. I thought it was extremely damaging when at the beginning of the pandemic people were saying, don't worry, it only kills people with pre-existing health conditions. Essentially, that is people with disabilities. And I definitely felt like a second-class citizen during that time. And that is when I got the opportunity to go on question time and I was able to look Matt Hancock, who was health secretary at the time. I could look at him in the eye and say, 
what are you doing for disabled people? At that time, we had a 10 years of a Tory government where year after year, they had stripped the disability benefits down and down and down and it was the 25 year anniversary of the Disability Discrimination Act and I said that act was brought in a quarter of a century ago I don't think we've nearly made enough progress. We need to do more. And about a minute when all over Hancock's fucking head, but by me saying that, I really felt like I made a difference. Mm. And I spoke for us, a group of people who don't often get the spaces to talk. So I will continue to campaign and fight and talk for us. But... At the same time, there's a few disabled people who say you need to do more. I recently got a lot of abuse online because not my own talk shows, but I sometimes perform other people's gigs in places that are inaccessible mm. and I get people going, why is she doing that? And the unfortunate truth is 90% of comedy venues are downstairs or upstairs and if I took a stand and I never performed in those clubs A, I'd never have work and B, I would be simply replaced by a non-disabled comedian and I make sure that a lot of my venues are accessible but I also don't want to deprive non-disabled crowds Um, of seeing me because you never know what difference I can make to non-disabled people. So, yeah, uh, to summarise, mm. I love making a difference and I think it is so important to speak out and be proud of who I am. But my job title is comedian. So if I want to go on stage and for one evening not talk about any activism mm. and just talk about how great my tits are. <laughs> uh, let me do that. <laughs>
Rosie, okay. The last change question is what would you what change you'd still like to make or see? Now this can be about you and your life and your situation, or it could be about the world around you. I'm gonna make it about me. Good woman. <laughs> I want to care less about what other people think of me. I I'm naturally an upbeat, happy, honest person, but I'm not like that 24-7, and I want to get to a space where if I'm tired, if I'm fucked off, and I go into a cafe and I get recognised. I am able to go, hello, I don't want photos today because I think I'm at the point now where I give everyone everything. And as soon as I leave my house, my guard is up and I am, hello, hello, I'm Rosie, always happy, never sad. I love being disabled, I love it, I love being disabled. And the truth is, I don't. Sometimes it's at 4 a.m. and an Uber driver won't pick me up because I think I'm drunk, I'm fucked off. I don't want to plead with a driver. I'm not drunk, honestly, I'm disabled. I should be allowed to just be myself and Mm. not be the shiny, happy Rosie that I had to be for other people. Do you feel like your comedy is changing? As you change, your perception of yourself changes as you're growing, as you're doing therapy, as you're doing the work, as they call it. Wonder what will happen with your comedy. Like, will you you go darker? I think that's what's so exciting about comedy because we all change. I will change at the moment. I'm a woman in her early 30s. I plan on being a performer until I die. So I'm excited to see that change. And I think I will become more unapologetic. I will become... Right, this is me. If you're not into it, fuck off. You, you look nervous. Get gone. And I am not apologising again for who I am. Rosie Jones, you're a fucking legend. This has just been the best conversation. I mean, it's the nicest way to spend a morning you could wish for. Yeah. (laughs) Thank you so much. Rosie Jones, ladies and gents, what an absolute legend. So warm, so smart, so funny. Of course, she would be being a stand-up comedian, uh, but such a unique take on comedy and on the world. And I think we can all agree the world is a much better place having Rosie Jones in it. There's moments when you watch her on stage where just the second after she drops a punchline, 
her entire face transforms from being, you know, quite serious to being the embodiment of joy. I can't describe it, but I, I've never encountered anyone with a smile like Rosie Jones. It's unbelievable. Go and look at it and you cannot not feel joyous watching it. Um, now to consume Rosie Jones and all of her work. So she's on tour. It's called the Triple Threat Tour. I think you can still get tickets to that now. She has her amazing Edie Eckhart books. If you know of any young people uh, who might be interested in reading about the adventures of Edie, then go and get them. There'll be lovely presents for people. And also, whatever you do, go and check out uh, Trip Hazard, My Great British Adventure on 4OD. You can still watch them on there. They're such lovely, lovely programs. Rosie brings a celebrity with her to a different part of the UK on every episode. So you kind of learn about the UK. You also have amazing rapport between Rosie and the celebrity. And Rosie kind of pushes herself to the limits of her disability in every app. And it's, yeah, just a hugely kind of thrilling and interesting watch. She's just so watchable. Yeah, let's all just be Rosie Jones's biggest fans from now on. I am. And that is it for this week, folks. Thank you so much for listening. Please do share this episode to anyone who you think will appreciate it. And uh, subscribe to Changes as well. That's always so, so cool if you could do that. We're very grateful. It means you'll get the episodes that come every Monday morning delivered straight to you. We'll be back next week with another episode of Changes. Until then, huge love. This episode was produced by Louise Mason through DIN Productions. See ya. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Mm. 